0: Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being and spirituality. Today's episode is about past lives, reincarnation and the art of channeling with global channeler Kevin Ryerson. I first learned about Kevin at a workshop led by Walter Simku who has worked in the field of past lives for a number of decades. Kevin is an acclaimed author, award-winning consultant, expert intuitive, and trans-channel in the tradition of Edgar Casey, which we'll talk about. He has been lecturing and teaching in the field of parapsychology and spirituality for over 40 years. He's also been a guest on national television shows, including Oprah Winfrey and Good Morning America. And he's the author of the book, Spirit Communication, The Soul's Path, which I have read, and I'm so excited to welcome him to the show today. So welcome, Kevin.
1: Okay. Thank you, Yasmeen. Thank you for having me today.
0: Wonderful. Well, Kevin, I'd love to just get started and talk about what exactly channeling is and in particular, trans-channeling, I think a lot of people have heard the term, uh, but don't quite know what exactly that means.
1: Okay, well, I think what many people can be familiar with is the idea of intuition, which intuition is often a spontaneous insight that comes to people in a moment of creativity. And essentially, all channels have done is to train themselves in that same ability to respond to different areas of inquiry that might be placed to them. Uh, you had mentioned, for instance, that I work in the tradition of Edgar Casey, And in the uh, case of uh, Edgar Cayce, he had a sixth grade, 19th century education. And yet, when he could go into a state of consciousness or a hypnotic state, they found that he was able to give discourses on subject materials that he had neither read nor had exposure to. And this was a wide range of information from anything from his famous medical readings, where he offered details that uh, science and holistic medicine is just beginning to explore the fuller potential of today to things such as making predictions that are still unfolding today, and as, as for the benefit of society, as well as uh, everything from geology to ancient esoteric history. Uh, in my case, I was working in a meditation class, and in entering into a state of meditation, it was discovered that a similar faculty uh, to that of uh, egregacy Casey, which I had described, was present with me when I was in these meditative states. So I am referred to at times as a channel or a trance channel and an expert intuitive because much like artists or musicians who, when they go into something that everyone's familiar with, like what's called a daydreaming state, or sometimes people have heard of what's called lucid dreaming. And in that spontaneous state, they're able to tap into that creativity that artists, uh, physicians, And other people who have those insights that improve their quality of life, I am able to do that as a service to people uh, on a regular rather than spontaneous basis.
0: Wow. And what is the difference between trans-channeling and just channeling? Is there a difference or is that just kind of the same thing? Well, trans-channeling
1: and channeling and even uh, various other forms of what are often referred to as intuitive experiences... They're really all of the uh, same phenomenon. Uh, Channeling sometimes can be done consciously. Uh, A person is fully conscious. Uh, They are completely aware of the flow of insights that are coming through. And uh, in that awareness, those people can harness that creativity and uh, be able to prosper in whatever field that they're practicing their intuition to. There are numerous occasions of musicians of just feeling that suddenly the music just like flowed to them from another source. Uh, there are numerous uh, examples of songwriters suddenly having a complete or whole composition uh, that is just uh, available to them in the form of the lyrics and the music. Um, now, in my particular case, rather than necessarily being conscious during the procedure, I'm in a deeper meditative state where there is a dialogue that occurs uh between the person making the inquiries, and uh in that altered state, I do not uh have full recall of of that conversation. Now, certain people who have had the experience of daydreaming may realize that well, I'm having a conversation with someone, that person says something it. Triggers something in my thought process, I go into daydreaming, I sort of see in front of me a point I want to make, but after they go to make the point, the daydreaming, unless they articulate it rather, immediately begins to fade away. So it's sort of like a dream that if we don't write it down, we may not recall the uh, direct experience of the insights that flow to us unless we articulate them immediately. And I'm one of those persons in that altered state where the memory rapidly fades, but uh, often because they are recorded or notes are taken on, they're preserved by people who want to access uh, the resource that channeling provides.
0: Mm, Wow. Yeah, I'm I'm imagining that you have to have such a high level of trust to be able to do this type of work. I mean, what makes a person a, a channel? Like how do you... I'm just curious. I mean, that's probably a whole other conversation, but um, I, and I say this because um, I never really knew much about this world. It was very, very new to me, and I had recently met someone who who was a channel, and I saw you know it in person, and I was very just taken back by the whole experience because it you know it does feel like there's a, a completely different consciousness that that comes in. And so, so yeah, I'm just curious, like, how do you, how do you let go enough to, to let this in or is it, you know, or, or are you not doing any kind of work to let it in?
1: Well, for further clarification for the listening audience um, in the case of Edgar Casey, Edgar Casey uh, would go into his channeling state, which he just referred to as, as going to sleep. He would have something of a vision uh, while he was in his meditative state. And he pictured himself going into a library where he would pick up a book, open the book, and then begin to read the content of the book. After which, uh, he had no recall of the exchange between him and putting the person, the person putting the questions. Now, in my particular case, uh, when I go into the channeling state, it, you would observe a person going into a meditative state or a sleep like state. And in my particular case, Uh, What channels through uh, is in contrast to Casey. Casey channeled what was called his higher self or what is referred to as the collective unconscious by psychologists and psychiatrists such as C.G. Jung. Everyone has uh, this intuitive potential and everyone can develop these particular faculties. In my particular case, uh, what is sometimes surprising to people It is the idea that that same information from those higher levels of consciousness coming through the subconscious or through those creative faculties we call intuition is what is referred to as ancestral intelligence. And this is sometimes what is the exotic experience for people uh, when they are first experiencing channeling. Now, uh, these levels of consciousness that I call... um, Ancestral intelligence, sometimes referred to them, some people refer to them as non-local intelligences. Uh, These are persons that go somewhat into our subject material of reincarnation. These are persons who act as what are called spirit guides and teachers in popular language. And these are persons who we knew in other lifetimes. When we may have incurred what's called karma or dharma, that contribute to the cycles of lives that we are living in the present. These ancestral intelligences, when speaking uh, through me, do can speak to contemporary issues and they have personalities that are very much of their own and they do reflect the time, the culture, and sometimes even the language or the dialect in which they speak. And uh, another one who speaks through is an ancestor by the name of Atun Ray. Who describes himself as an old egyptian and he is the one that uh, has worked with dr sim q all these years on his reincarnation project in identifying past lives for the purpose in dr sim q's case of documenting the reality within scientific uh, boundaries of research to see if the phenomena of reincarnation might be able to have a provable basis to it so The ancestral intelligences that speak through are referred to as spirit guides and teachers. Many people feel, probably even persons in your audience, that at times that they have an experience of what they might call a guardian angel or someone who is close to them, uh, who they feel sort of continues to maybe offer them guidance or insights as sort of a personality or a presence. And all channels do is that they allow for those presences to be able to communicate through for guidance of people who are placing inquiries to them.
0: Mm. Wow. So fascinating. Um, and so so I have a couple of questions. Um, you spoke about, you know, different ancestral consciousness uh, coming through for Shirley MacLaine. Do you have kind of a large assortment of people that come through based on who you're reading, or do you work with kind of like one of a, of a select group? Um, and then also I wanted to talk more about Edgar Casey and his um, prediction. So two questions, oh, Okay. <laughs> uh, two different questions. There you
1: go. Two but for yeah. the price of one, not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, generally speaking, uh, People can view the channeling process uh, by going to uh, YouTube. They can uh, take a look at uh, what's there. And uh, they put in my name along with uh, that of Shirley McLean. Uh, the mini series that Shirley had put out in uh, 1987 essentially. Uh, that is preserved on YouTube, so people could look that up, and they could view a channeling as it transpired. Because even though that was being prepared for, uh, for a miniseries, that was a trance-channeling state that I was in. That, that was not a performance, that was an actual trance state. Where Shirley reconstructed some of her original questions and inquiries. Now, what they will view there is the consciousness uh, called John, Uh, speaking through, again, he was a member of the Essene sects. In Hebrew, his name is pronounced Yokonan. Um, In another consciousness speaking through to Shirley was the one I had mentioned, which would be Tom McPherson. And people can then experience uh, how these personalities speak in their own dialect, and their own time, but to the contemporary subject materials that uh, Shirley was exploring about her personal spiritual journey at that time. Now there is another uh, there is another channeling that has been presented on YouTube uh, for viewers of the internet. And uh, again, if they put in my name, Kevin Ryerson, and maybe just the word channeling, it should pull that up. But that was an interview conducted where I did do a channeling, uh, where they can visually see me entering into the channeling state and another consciousness by the name of Atun Ray, who is an old Egyptian uh it articulates through. And again, um it is to the purpose of the person asking the questions as to which consciousness will speak through. Um, in the case of Dr. Sim Q, Antoine Ray, you might say may have had more cultural experience with the concepts of reincarnation than, say, for instance, Tom McPherson's stage experience. Uh, in his conversations with Shirley. So really, it is the intelligence that has the most rapport with the person who's asking the question is the one that will articulate through. And in my particular case, to answer your question, essentially, uh, there are about three, maybe four, prominent levels of consciousness to have spoken through over the, over the years to a number of different individuals according to their needs.
0: Wow. Fascinating. Uh, so Kevin, um I want to talk about some of the the kind of common questions about like why we're here and mm-hmm. what is karma and you know all these things. but before we move on to that, I really want to talk about um, Edgar Casey's predictions mm-hmm. and because I just think you know our you know maybe the younger generation has sort of not really uh, is not really aware honestly of Edgar Casey. Um, I, I say that generally speaking. I think the, the general public is maybe not as aware of um, what, you know, Edgar Casey predicted. And I'd, I'd love to double click and highlight that. Um, mm-hmm. And since, since you've spent so much time, you know, in it, on his work, could you talk to us about maybe some of the predictions that he made and, and how they're sort of manifesting and playing out right now?
1: Well, I would like to address one of the more significant predictions that that Casey gave, because it's still unfolding in a contemporary manner, but I can also uh, mention a few that he was uh, quite well noted for. You might say that some of his predictions uh, were bore out by what were called his uh, medical readings, where at a distance, Casey appeared to have the ability to sort of see, through what was called clairvoyance, the medical condition of various people, uh, to give a uh, assessment of their condition and then simultaneously not just make predictions about their diagnostic state but offer insights and or therapies that might help that person achieve a state of well-being which goes in my opinion to the very core of why prophecy or prediction exists uh, prophecy exists not for the purpose of just making a prediction to which we react to in the form of a a predicted disaster, and then somehow we uh, flee from the circumstance of that disaster. Prophecy really exists, or prophets exist, to uh, explain what could be well for a human community. In that, if they had certain behavior, in that if they were fulfilling certain potential in their community, then the prophecy contained. A positive in that these are the kinds of people and these are the kind of things you can choose for the well-being of your community and you can prosper by by that. Uh, if that which was not well for the community, what was not good for the community was not present in the community or the behavior of people were in a certain way, only then did they make a prediction that there might be a negative circumstance arising out of the behavior of people. Now um, Casey, for instance, had and was noted for a very accurate prediction of uh, World War II. Uh, He was given credit for uh, an insight that predicted the uh, assassination of both of the Kennedys. Um, These would be uh, classic examples of predictions of possibly dire consequences that were far reaching into the future. His most famous predictions, however, that can still have benefit for society today were what were called his earth change prophecies. Now, uh, what Edgar Cayce had predicted, that if a certain pattern of behavior continued uh, with humanity, and what that pattern behavior was, is that if humanity developed addictions to certain types of technology, and if they did not uh, respect uh, the impact that their particular behavior and technologies might have on the ecology in general, this could lead to consequences of forms of large losses of landmass uh, all around the globe, initially by a geological circumstance, such as earthquakes or a submergence of shorelines. Again, linking things like climate and geological events to human behavior. Now, I have pointed out that in the in the case of one particular social prophet, he made one uh, clear insight where he said, "The medium is the message." In this particular case, he was speaking of television. And eventually he said that the technology of television itself would become the very phenomena that was the driving force in human behavior. And if Edgar Casey uh, alone was noted just for his linking human behavior and technology to the idea that the quality of life that we live in the form of climate, geology, and the uh, conditions that, that may exist in our in our cities in relationship to the ecology. If he had made that one prediction alone, much like that, much like that earlier sociologist, he would have had uh, the equivalency of being one of uh, our planet's uh, greater uh, sociologists, far as predictions reaching their fulfillment. Now, uh, as to how that prophecy is still unfolding. I would point out the following. It is possible to go online and if you put in Edgar Casey map, earth changes, those keywords on Google, it'll pull up a map of what Edgar Cayce said our world would look like if humanity continued uh, its addiction to certain technologies and certain behavior and the impact it would have on the planet and the ecology through climate and uh, geology. Then, if you look at the scientifically generated maps uh, that you can find in Al Gore's book called An Inconvenient Truth, that with global warming, which is an emergence out of our, uh, of our addiction to such things as um, greenhouse gas uh, uh, technologies, if you look at the two maps, you'll find them almost virtually identical. Castes was seen in something of a dream or a vision. Essentially, the so-called uh, climate warming maps of where the oceans, if it just rises by no more than three inches by an increase of temperature, three degrees, we would begin to lose some of our major coastal cities and the consequences that follow. We can even see this unfolding when entire cities Uh, such as uh, New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, where an entire uh, major city had been lost and or had lost decades of advancement because of global warming and the alterations occurring in the environment. So I would say that Edgar Cayce's uh, prophecy or prediction that if humanity behaved in one manner— and essentially became, became more conscious that we are stewards of the ecology in which we live. And if we were more aware of the way that our behavior affected the ecology, we would be living in more positive circumstances today. And the same thing is now being said by the science involving global warming. and so therefore, if we follow the same principles that both Casey said, and science says, and we rid ourselves of addictions to certain uh, lifestyle trends and choose to live a life more of well-being, those alone would have been worth listening to the Edgar Casey prophecies and how they are ongoing and unfolding even into the 21st century.
0: Wow. Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, so I'll have to look up the Edgar Cayce map and the Al Gore map and (laughs) take a look at what what those are. Um, It's just fascinating. I I think it's so uh, frustrating that I think a lot of this has not... I guess been preserved as mainstream culture, or maybe it is, and it just feels like it hasn't hit maybe a younger generation. Well, there's um, a broader
1: yes, there's a broader range of individuals, and in, in the numbers of those individuals are actually rather startling that that are aware of these kinds of phenomena. Uh, for instance, there was a cultural study done of what emerged and what were referred to as the cultural creatives. This, again, is something that uh, folks could look up. Cultural creatives were identified that in the United States alone, there are 35 million uh, persons who essentially draw their worldview from science, education, uh, democracy, uh, knowledgeable decisions about economy, but also take into account a philosophical or a spiritual uh, worldview in which they make in their decision making process. This would not just be my generation, but it is the so called uh, millennials that are included in those 35 million individuals. In Europe, they applied the uh, same cultural study. And in Europe, it is 75 million people. And one of the things I think that if we point out the the greater uh, in the greater world, um, the West, for instance, in the United States, makes up, shall we say, about three, maybe five percent of the world's population. But if we take into account uh, the millions of people, say, for instance, in India or if we take into account the close to uh, one billion people who hold uh, values in the various Avrahamic religions and uh, religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism, here we literally have millions of billions of people who hold some type of spiritual worldview. Uh, And many of them, certainly in the billions, who, for instance, hold to the b- b- such belief systems as karma, dharma, reincarnation, some of our subject material to be explored. And so it really is necessary to take into account that the greater world, uh, rather than just the Western worldview, um, is probably very much part and parcel as to how many people hold these belief systems and find them with the, uh, with the capacity of not only believing them uh, with ease, but find actually that it is a seamless integrated part of their culture and their daily worldview.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you on that. I, th- I do think that the world um, is... Even the younger population is more spiritual and more open. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the, the the sort of subject matters within the realm of spirituality. So things like karma and dharma, which you spoke about. Um, things like you know what happens after we die. What you know what happens when we dream. And you know, I asked these questions specifically because I know they were they were a part of your book, um, and so I'm curious. Like, were you did you were you able to channel the answers to those questions by um, tapping into this ancestral consciousness? And also, like, maybe we could talk to us a little bit more about like what you think karma is and what's what's the purpose of karma and what is dharma?
1: Well, channeling certainly enhanced my knowledge of these matters. And I would say that it's even I've even contributed to the literature on what I have learned from the channeling suggesting phenomena such as uh, karma and uh the concept of uh, dharma and uh continuing to make a contribution maybe to the field of reincarnation with the works of Dr. Walter mq Uh for our listening audience, the concept of karma uh is the idea that there is a law of return that as we put out behavior Uh, from either a previous lifetime or this lifetime, that behavior in turn uh, forms a self-fulfilling cycle of behavior from which in turn we might be able to learn from the circumstances of certain cycles of behavior in our life. Um, One of the things about karma, unfortunately, is that people have a tendency to think of that they come into uh, a lifetime because there is some type of karma from a previous lifetime that is the sole motivation for their their choosing another lifetime. In other words, it's often referred to as a karmic debt. Um, I would point out to people that in reality, karma simply is, again, the law of return. And yes, the behavior that we put out in the form of uh, circumstance in where we may have uh, taken actions in another lifetime, those do return to us, but those are not necessarily debts that are paid off before a person achieves some of the positive qualities in life. Um, and there, one should never use the term karma alone as a principle without its twin or complementary word called dharma dharma really is uh the idea that one life itself or as it's been termed at times the universe itself is is a self-organizing principle everything flows in the in the patterns of dharma just just like a river flows uh with continuously it flows from the glaciers into the lakes into the rivers eventually into the oceans where there's the, the rainfall and snowfall and returning it to the glacier and the cycles of life continue. It is really that flow of dharma that is the driving force behind life. And dharma also means, uh, in some Buddhist thought, very close to what is called right labor. Uh, right labor is talents, abilities, Uh, things that we have cultivated in other lifetimes that we bring in, in which we can do that which is well for us and well for other persons. So when a person is in the flow of Dharma, they really do begin to transcend simply the phenomena of karma. Because when you're in the flow of right labor, when you're in the flow of your talents, your abilities, your God-given gifts, to have a, a deep bond with your fellow members of your soul group or humanity, anything that is then so-called karmic in nature is no longer looked at something that we have to be confined to and is punitive or punishment. It really is just there to, for us to learn lessons from. Uh, in a conversation with Shirley McLean one time, uh surely it had, had a couple of incidences in life that she felt was a little bit challenging in elements in her career and she was wondering what the karma was but uh in a conversation with tom McPherson, it was pointed out to her well you know sometimes these circumstances occur in life and they they give you emotions and responses that that you feel uh very deeply about in those circumstances. But as an actress, if you're ever called upon to play a character who has the need of those same ranges of emotions and feelings that arise out of some circumstance in life, that's actually a valuable asset to you at some time in the future. And the minute she realized that these things may occur, that add a a greater emotional uh, resource for her as a performer and actress and she can draw on those feelings at some time in the future if it was ever demanded of her that was an example of her dharma her her ability as a public figure and as a person involved in social activism these just give her a deeper richer emotional authority and life experience that she can draw on at the appropriate moment in time because that is not just her karma. It's more in the flow of her dharma or her right labor.
0: Mm, That's amazing. I love that. So it's interesting because then the things that, you know, happen to us are really just helping us, you know, become the person that (laughs) we need to show up to be in our lifetime. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about Some other topics because we're running out of time and I feel like I have so many more questions for you. This is very fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You spoke about in your book about, you know, what happens uh, when we die. Um, So I think the concept of what happens when we die and like the idea of past lives and reincarnation is some that some cultures believe in or some people believe in and many people don't at all. So how do you, I mean, do you, is there anything that you can share that can help people understand you know what is what is your belief about what happens when we die and what is like how can we how can we know for certain that there is something called past lives and are we just in this continuum right like is is there actually like w- what is what I sort of don't even know how to ask this question because do we even die when, when our you know when our bodies no longer go on like is our spirit just continues to go on forever what what actually happens um, well, yes. from your perspective
1: okay <laughs> well it's an excellent question well first of all well I am not was considered a traditional medium in the sense of spiritualism where uh, traditional mediums and spiritualism it is really their entire mission uh, statement to give evidence of the existence of the afterlife, or rather the soul survival, or what they refer to as the continuity of life. Uh, And I love that particular expression. So that is a service that they provide, and I often look at it as sort of almost a a form of post-mortem grief resolution to to help people uh, realize the survival of people they were close to or loved ones. Now, I am not a, a channel or a medium in that particular tradition, uh, so I don't want to raise that expectation for folks. Um, however, the ancestral intelligence that speak through, they have given very, very vivid description of what it's like to transition from, as they put it, from the physical into, uh, into spirit or into the states of energy they describe that they exist in. And persons like Dr. Walter Semkew, in his extensive research with reincarnation, has specifically asked quite directly of uh, some of the personalities of John, Tom McPherson, or Antun Ray, what is uh, what we refer to as the afterlife very, very much like. Now, it's been pointed out by personalities such as Antun Ray uh, as an Egyptian or as a Nubian all they see is that life is uh, a form of transition. And um, it was pointed out that in these cultures that emphasize the, the idea of the continuity of life, they could train themselves to be keenly aware of what that transition was like, and so therefore had no fear around it. And I would like to make the point for the audience that we actually have that capacity Uh, to experience those things today and in a manner that is not unsettling. Um, There are numerous studies that have been done of what is called the out-of-body experience. Uh, The out-of-body experience is sometimes referred to in popular vernacular as astral projection. And out-of-body experience does not only occur... Uh, as it has in many documented cases necessarily when a traumatic event occurs or where a person has experienced what's called NDE or near-death experiences, which science has documented. These out-of-body experiences are, according to the channelings, occur all the time in our sleep states or in our conscious meditative states. Sometimes we conceive of them as just a form of lucid dreaming. But it's a, it's a sense of the experience that we are in another locale uh, that has a heightened reality to it, a heightened sensibility to it, and that we can practice those by entering into what's called our dreamscape and or our meditations because these are natural faculties uh, that we all have as human beings. Now, in certain cultures, like say, for instance, in Bali or in Tibet, Uh, where you have people who, within that culture, that prayer and meditation is an everyday part of life, these people will have dreams, they'll have visions, or they'll have these, uh, what are referred to as out-of-body experiences, with continuity. And that has a tendency not to desensitize them in the issues involving grief or sense of loss of uh, loved ones, but it can prepare them for a moment in life where eventually there may be a transition from what they call this physical plane of existence into the spiritual planes of existence. Now, how uh, these things have been described by the consciousnesses that speak through myself tabulates very well with what has been the scientific studies of out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences. And that is consistently that depending on the culture in which the event is occurring or which the experience is occurring, uh, if it's occurring in one of the Asian cultures, a person may experience like a white light that comes to them, and they may then experience ancestors or loved ones who they were close to. They then continue on in this pattern of white light where they may meet uh, a personality of what is considered to be a spiritual figure of the asian culture this might be buddha this might be uh, such as siddhartha it may be the figure of daruma and eventually they pass into the higher levels of consciousness where they may become aware of the flow of their lifetime that they had lived as well as the potential of the next lifetime that they may actually incarnate into in the west it's very similar Uh, it's the idea that there is they find themselves in a bright light they again meet with people whom they knew in this lifetime who've maybe passed over They meet a figure of some Western heroic circumstance where that may be uh, Yeshua or uh, Jesus, uh, per se, or some sainted figure. And then they go on into a higher luminosity where they have a heightened awareness or sense of oneness in which they overcome their fear of our mortality. And these states of consciousness have a tremendous effect on people. It has been transformative on people's personalities. Uh, It has been beneficial to people, for instance, who were seeking healing involving emotional circumstance or even spontaneous remission in physical uh, circumstances. People might want to look into the works of people like Dr. Dean Ornish or Gabriel Cousins as uh, some of these examples about how consciousness and meditation can be uh, agencies for the well-being of the individual in these various circumstances that I was articulating. But what is the afterlife like? It is, it's a perceptual reality. Um, in the West, we might picture uh, some circumstance uh, that is our ideal of what the afterlife may be like. Spiritualists often uh, see it as that we're in a state of well-being. Uh, we're in a an environment that we are familiar to, and heaven may look a little bit like Mayberry R.F.D., which was a small midwestern town, popularized by television, or a small turn of the century town, where everyone is there, everyone is in a, in a in a joyous state. Or heaven may look like some of the descriptions that have come across ideally in different cultures. Uh, It may be paradise in the form of a beautiful ecology or a beautiful open field. But generally speaking, it is a perceptual reality that helps the person accept their transition into their higher or their spiritual state which is a state of well-being, a state of enhanced consciousness, but above all else, a oneness or enlightenment of how uh, our potential might be in our next incarnation.
0: Fascinating! Wow, um, yeah, just so interesting. I, I can't even, I, you know, I can't even reconcile it in my mind, to be totally honest. Um, so. You know, I, since we don't have that much time, Kevin, I want to just do kind of a rapid fire question round, if you don't mind. Sure, go ahead. Like last couple of questions. Okay. Uh, so you spoke about the idea of soulmates in your book, and I mm-hmm. think that's a popular question a lot of people have, like, do I have a soulmate? Is that soulmate always a romantic soulmate, or could it just be, a, you know, a personal connection? Um, and, you know, why do we feel maybe closer to some people than others? Uh, what does that mean to you? So two, two different questions, but related. Yes.
1: Uh, well, it goes again to the idea of reincarnation. Now, soulmate can be very esoteric in the sense that this goes down to the very idea of the creation. Um, in the shortest of terms, it's the idea that um, there was the Big Bang, which you might say was the way that God set in motion what we call the creation, You might then say God had a second act of creation or evolution in creating the dimensions we call biological life. Then, in sharing the beauty of these acts of evolution and creation, the divine or God called into existence souls, and soulmates are beings who are very much like identical twins. And the reason they exist within this uh, cosmology I'm describing is they exist for the purpose to be co-creators with the divine, much the same way identical twins are attracted or have affinity for similarities in life, and they often converse with each other and form consensus in, in making decisions in their life, it's the idea that these souls created as twins. With their infinite knowledge and then they came to a consensus to to be co-creators with the divine to be an evolutionary force with the divine there would be no ego involved so therefore no karma so they could move through this cosmology very smoothly much like dolphins might move through their uh aqueous or liquid environment now romantically uh there are what are called twin souls who are more like cousins than say identical twins And yes, you can use the term soulmate. And this is the idea that people uh, who we may have known in a multitude of other lifetimes through our various incarnations uh, essentially become so familiar with each other, it is virtually no different than, say, the familiarity and the comfort we may have had with someone we knew coming of age. We may have known a person in high school. We may have known a person in uh, college we may have known a person in our business circumstances and as we continue on sometimes we literally say my goodness you know my high school days and my college days and who am i now those are almost like other lifetimes but when you meet those persons in the flow of life you have that bond with them that that a life common life experience well lifetimes have been referred in the channelings, other lives, have been referred to as the childhood of the soul. And so therefore, when we meet people where we may have shared other lives, that spiritual bond runs so deep, that's what accounts for as many of the times what appears to be these deep, immediate recognitions we have other persons whom we refer to as our soulmates which may be romantic in the form of forming uh, partnerships, marital states, um, maybe enterprises together, because we just have that immediate recognition, even if we did not know that life uh, person in the lifetime we are living now. In other words, the this, this spiritual bond runs very deep between individuals. Mm. But the real purpose of the soulmate is that we are to be co-creators with the divine and to, to sort of adhere to what's called agape, which is a word meaning the love we can have for our fellow human beings, and literally treating our neighbors as ourselves.
0: Wow! What happens if your uh, soulmate is not, let's say, here? Uh, you know, in your lifetime.
1: Generally speaking, uh, it is possible for the soulmate to be uh, not incarnate at the same time we are. Often then, they are, they are one of our spiritual guides or teachers that I had referred to in the cosmology of uh, channeling earlier in the program. There are times persons who are soulmates who don't even necessarily get along, uh, for it, but they, they have great creative acts together that may even have impact on history. Now, setting aside politics, and because both of these parties have passed on, and there's enough historical decades have passed, I will give an example. Um, George Bush Sr., it was suggested, and Saddam Hussein, being on opposite sides of history, were soulmates because their actions defined each other. That's what they are remembered for. Another example that has more of a a significant moment in history is that uh, Moshe Dayan and Anwar Sadat, the the president of uh, Egypt, even though they had been two military men on opposite sides of a military issue in issues between Egypt and Israel, Both of them were crucial to eventually forming the peace that did and hold to this day between Egypt and Israel. And both of them were considered to be soulmates, even though they may have been on the opposite side of the the military and political issues. And so therefore, they defined each other. And where Anwar Sadat was tragically uh, lost due to an assassination... Moshe Dayan, a famous military uh, person in Israeli history, left his body or transitioned five days later. So it's like their acts of contribution to the cycles of humanity's history and well-being had come to a mutual conclusion. So those are examples of the soulmates who may have been making contributions to humanity in various forms, but who may have been on opposite sides of the the issue. Romantic uh, soulmates can occur. Uh, There have been any number of famous uh, poets, such as Elizabeth Barrett Browning and her husband, whom were high compatibles, and or the relationship between, say, Helen Keller and the therapist who helped her to achieve her uh, ability to communicate, even though Helen Keller was born Deaf and blind and mute. But essentially, she chose that not out of a karmic punishment, but out of a dharmic service so that humanity might be able to benefit from the therapies that evolved out of her condition and the rest of humanity might benefit by her life experience through the works called The Miracle Worker. That is an example of Dharma versus karma.
0: Wow, I can hear more examples all day, actually. This is very fascinating.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, I would encourage people if they'd like some of those examples, it's easily accessible. My work with Dr. Walter Semkew, for instance, uh, he has created a, uh, a database of reincarnation case histories that address many of these points. And it's simply called reincarnationresearch.com. And people can go there and hear many of these uh, elegant points of metaphysics that you and I are discussing today. And that, that can be a resource for some of your listeners.
0: Really great. Okay. Um, since we're coming at time, I want to ask what you think is the future of humanity, especially over this last year. Um, what have you seen in terms of the way human consciousness has shifted and changed? And where do you think we're kind of, we're going.
1: I have a tendency to be what I call an optimalist. Uh, I am an optimistic about humanity's potential because essentially um, I think that humanity does have a tendency to preserve what works. That's why I refer to my position as optimalism, a combination of optimism and what is optimal. Um, in the in the current condition we're experiencing uh, with the COVID virus, the point of the matter is is that viruses occur in nature. They do not want to really uh, they don't want to take the life of anyone or any organic form. Otherwise, they themselves cease to exist. And the, the point is is that when humanity does apply itself, it, it is able to develop the necessary uh, medicines, the necessary healing, the necessary unity that can allow humanity to prosper by what otherwise would be just a tragic circumstance due to the loss of life that is occurring. However, this can also show the interconnectedness that uh, humanity has. The the um, the oneness that humanity has, and that we live in a world that is unified not just by our technologies and our means of transportation, but it can be unified in our intentionality, in the in the way that we see all life as having value, uh, all life having equality. So events like these, they may be karmic in nature. But the deeper undercurrent, the real river of uh, humanity's consciousness is dharma. Karma does not exist to punish. Uh, it, it exists strictly as cycles in time which exist for a greater light enlightenment of humanity. And I would also like to point out that we, we have begun to fulfill the visions of many social prophets. Dr. Martin Luther King uh, had hoped that eventually... There could be the potential in humanity to allow persons of all background to rise to some of the highest levels of achievement uh, in our society. And no matter what the politics of person may be, the election of the personality known as Barack Obama is a fulfillment within people who lived within uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's lifetime of seeing that prophecy unfold. Unfold. Sometimes uh, there does enter political office less than stellar personalities, but I think that those less than stellar personalities exist only for the purpose of stress testing the community of uh, people who then get to see what the display of that behavior is, so it's a stress test for democracy. And that is also even dharmic in and of its nature. It doesn't exist to punish the human community for having made some mistake. It is lessons and enlightenments that we can learn from. So I actually feel that there is a greater potential for a more unified humanity that is emerging at this very point in time. And I very much like the idea that we are entering a new or an Aquarian vision of of ourselves. And that is unfolding even in these days. And again, returning to the Casey prophecy, it is in the cycles of time that eventually, uh, even as the Buddhists say, even the ecology can come to a state of enlightenment. And I think that humanity has that
0: potential. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, oh, well, So what about um, some things that maybe surprised you the most? Like, did you, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about how you came to be uh, a channel and, you know, you've been on this journey for so long. I mean, it's just interesting just doing research um, about you and your work. And so what do you think has surprised you the most? And like, where do you think things have shifted over the last maybe decade or two since you've been doing this work? Like how have people perceived uh, the world of channeling or how have people perceived maybe the, um, you know, the actual inner workings of, of becoming more connected to self and the, the ideas of karma and dharma and finding their dharma and actually acting on it?
1: Well, I think the, the, the thing about, uh, discovering our karma and dharma is a very natural process. I think of one, I had the good fortune of coming from something of a creative or artistic family. um, in my early uh, early years, I was working in graphic arts. And uh, at the ripe old age of 2021, 20, <laughs> I had uh, <laughs> felt I had reached a, a little bit of an artistic burnout. So I joined an Anchor Casey uh, meditation study group to, to re engage the meditative process with the intent of uh, re getting into my own deeper. Uh, creativity. Out of those meditations, uh, one evening, I more or less fell what I thought was asleep, but apparently it was something of a spontaneous altered state. And the people who were there had the presence of mind, all being students of Edgar Cayce, to make a number of inquiries while I was in that meditative state because the consciousness known as John uh, articulated through. And to them and to myself, all these things are natural processes because uh, I had sort of come of age studying Casey. Parapsychology originally was sort of a hobby of mine, uh, which is the scientific study of all these types of uh, phenomena. The way I put it was is that in high school, when other kids were working on model airplanes and went on to become uh, airline pilots, I was studying ESP and Zener cars and went on to become an expert in tooling. <laughs> So to myself, although there was a spontaneous discovery of the channeling state, to me, it was like any other talent. Uh, Art is a talent, and you can cultivate it and develop it in various ways and express it in various ways. Intuition, to me, is a talent, and it can be cultivated and developed in just sort of a form that practice makes perfect, and it helps if there is a community of individuals Who are experienced uh, within that field, and I just had the good fortune of having that positive reinforcement. Um, So I would say that was my evolution towards working with the channeling. I began to set on a regular basis for a broad range of individuals, deliberately uh, wanting persons of diverse backgrounds to put inquiries to the channeling state to see what the range and the natural capacity of the channeling was. That would Eventually, over the years, that was anyone from Shirley McLean in the creative communities, to uh, Dr. Walter Semkew, who has his multi-decade research into reincarnation as a medical doctor and psychiatrist, to Dr. William Couts, who worked at Stanford Research International, our nation's largest think tank, and he explored issues of everything from sudden infant death syndrome to earthquake-triggering mechanisms, which is working at Stanford Research International, he was actually able to put some of the insights of the channelings through uh, ongoing experimental models that were occurring at SRI and found that intuitionists such as myself and others were able to generate insights and knowledge in advance of what the science of the day knew at that time. That was really what his protocols were. So to myself was a very natural process, uh, and it's a talent like anyone in the listening audience could cultivate to the degree to which they are comfortable and have the support of their uh, community behind them.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love that so much because I think a lot of people. Uh, we we just had um, Laura Day, who's an intu- intuitionist, and you know she talks about how it's a skill set, and you you need to cultivate it. You know, just like everything else, and I think a lot of people just don't you know, don't know where to go or don't know how to start or just see it as this kind of magical thing. But we, we all have the capacity and of course it takes, you know, time uh, to develop those skill sets. Um, and you've been doing this for so long, so (laughs) I'm sure it's very easy for you now. Um, Kevin, I'm so fascinated by our conversation. I'm almost speechless. (laughs) like, um, because I'm, you know, I think that there's so many questions about like why we're here and, and, you know, what's the purpose of our existence. And, you know, I've, I've read a lot about different spiritual modalities. I think it's been hard for me to explain some of these esoteric terms to maybe more scientifically minded audiences who are just interested in measurement or or a way to measure uh, this, you know, and of course, like, there's, there's a ton of data out there, I think at this point people just don't want to acknowledge it. Um, so I just thank you for your time. And is there anything that you want to tell our listeners about their health, their wellness, their well-being, uh, how they can maybe do some of the work that you do as a takeaway?
1: Yeah, certainly, uh, I would put it again uh, within the cosmology we've been discussing. Um, the the oldest form of channeling, really, for instance, is healing. Uh, it's associated with laying out of hands, the idea of working with chi or ki energy. So anyone working, say, uh, with tai chi for health and well-being knows that they may at times go into very deep meditative states. Uh, that's a form of channeling. Um, so anyone who wants to pursue a state of well-being through yoga or tai chi or so-called laying out of hands or through reiki, those are those are forms of channeling, where the person goes into a, into a state that can con- very much contribute to their well, health and well-being. Hatha yoga, for instance, is for the well-being of the individual. The other thing is, is that they might want to to look into uh, a healthy diet, uh, in the sense that the more you have a plant-based diet, uh, the more you're really contributing to say what I call an Eden-like state in the ecology. Uh, So therefore, that again goes to those issues of the more that we become conscious of ourselves as spiritual beings and look to have our lives uh, to be holistically an integrated one of mind, body, and spirit, the more we can develop an Eden-like state uh, on the planet. Now, I don't mean to say that people cannot have uh, a traditional diet, say along the lines of the Mediterranean diet, which includes some fish, some fowl, or or animal protein, because there are people's body type who need to stimulate that. Um, Any number of different physicians who are very, very holistic do acknowledge those particular conditions. Uh, People might look into, for instance, the work of Dean Ornish, where he recommends a plant-based diet, but simultaneously, he says, the most important benefit for what he calls the tissue regeneration that might occur out of that comes from not just the diet, but the meditative states, or what he called an emotional epiphany of oneness that people might have. So just taking uh, into account a person's maximum potential for personal creativity You can work with meditation in that capacity. For maximum well-being for yourself physically, uh, again, you can take into account uh, yoga or uh, a meditative capacity. For a maximum ability of any type of human uh, peak performance, such as athletes who go into what they call the zone or what is called flow, where time slows down and they are able to foresee the events in their athletic uh, goal per se uh, before it transpires. Uh, people who have been trained like that, such, such as the Williams sisters, that shows that all of these different creative states that bring out the the, the peak creative potential of the individual, the peak well being of the of the person, is able to access that through the elegant process of meditation, and that the results then begin to speak for themselves. So I would encourage people to, to look at that moment where they just take time for themselves, for their personal well-being, and the well-being of the people in their community, a contemplative moment, so suggested like 20 minutes a day, and take that moment for their their own well-being and their neighbors' well-being, and that will facilitate a self-realization process in their journey.
0: Hmm. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Yeah, I think we all need to do that. It's not even a, a luxury anymore. It's a it's a must.
1: It it really is an, it's a It's a very much a human need.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know we went over, but I mean, honestly, I had so many more questions that I wanted to ask. (laughs) So um, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of uh, inquiries after this uh, this talk. And for those of you who uh, have not read the book, uh, please check out Kevin's book, Spirit Communication, The Soul's Path. It's really, really fascinating. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening in this episode. We learned about past lives, reincarnation, and the art of channeling with Kevin Ryerson. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.